Hello, and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, coming to you virtually from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we'll bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, and interview talented local actors and directors. Today, we welcome to the show actor, singer, director, influencer, and creator of The Augmented Actor, Doug Fall. Hello, how are you? So Doug started performing on stage in high school and graduated with a BFA in theater and music from the University of Utah. Since moving to Seattle, he has appeared in hundreds of stage and screen productions over his 35-plus year career. Some might recognize him from his lead in the 2010 cult horror comedy film, Zombies of Mass Destruction, from various musical theater productions on Seattle area stages and sci-fi channel Z Nation. Doug directed Second Story Reps, A Christmas Carol in 2018, as well as several music and corporate videos. He works heavily in virtual reality production as a designer of 3D models, texture, art, lighting, and animation, as well as freelancing as a motion designer and video producer. In June 2018, Doug founded his YouTube channel, Augmented Actor, which combines his passions for theater, film, and design into a channel geared toward helping actors improve their craft and learn new tricks. In 2019, Doug expanded Augmented Actor to include a Facebook group where members discuss daily subjects related to acting. And that's where we initially met Doug, was on his Facebook page. I I saw this Augmented Actor thing. I was like, this looks like some good content. And with a resume like that, we're... Where do we start with a guy like Doug? I, I suppose we should probably start back at the beginning. Uh, we were we were really read, enjoyed reading your bio uh, materials you sent over to us, Doug. And uh, one of the first things I noticed is you started performing on stage uh, in high school. Now, is it true that you started your acting career on a dare from your best friend in junior high? And if so, how much money was involved and what was that first show? We want to know. <laughs> well, yeah, that is true. Uh, when I was in junior high, I was extremely shy, uh, introverted, didn't uh, like getting up in front of people at all. Um, and my best friend Cody at the time knew that. And uh, when we were talking about the classes that we wanted to take in high school, I thought, hey, I might want to try a theater class. And he said, uh, no, you would never do that. That's not for you. And I said, why not? You know, he goes, because you have to get up in front of people and, and, and be something that you aren't, you know? And I'm like, well, I think I could do that. And he goes, I, I bet you $10 that you would not sign up for a, a drama class in high school. So I took him up on that bet. I signed up. And uh, the following year, I, um, I had to do my first monologue for that class. And he helped me prepare which piece to do. And, and I did it. And I got that sort of magic feeling inside and, and I was hooked ever since. Uh, and I don't recall if he ever um, paid me that $10. I don't think he did. <laughs> I think he was shocked that I actually did it because I, I mean, I was a, a total wallflower back then. So. Well, I think Matt and I, I mean, we both know that feeling when, you know, you get on stage for the first time and it's, 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 it's kind of indescribable. Um, it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm that magic kind of feeling that, um, and yeah, I think uh, even if he didn't pay you, I think it's paid you back plenty <laughs> since then. So since that, so since that auspicious beginning, you've been in hundreds of shows from, you know, in Utah and Seattle, Village Theater, Second Story Rep, Seattle Music Theater, just to name a few. So you've got some experience with casting and being cast. And um, what constants have you seen from theater to theater, uh, company to company when it comes to casting? 
It's pretty much the same process in most of the theaters that I've seen. I feel like you get treated pretty well in Seattle for most theater productions. Uh, I would say that the biggest constant that I experience is not so much in casting or directing, it's in the people that you meet. Every show that I did early on in Seattle, I met somebody that told me to audition for the next show or said, you know, hey, I'm directing this show and I would like you to come do it. And, and every project seemed to lead from one project to the next. And when I look back on my career in retrospect, it, it feels like a definite, a through line that was all connected dot to dot to dot. And each person led me to a, a bigger or better role or, you know, a, a bigger community as well. So the constants that I see is like, you're, you're constantly seeing the same people whether you're going to a big regional theater audition or whether you're going to a smaller community theater audition, the same people show up and pop up. And that's the Seattle theater community there. There are people that are, um, they work on all different levels, you know, because we, we just like to work. You know, again, the, the, it's, it's a big family really, right? So mm -hmm. it's, you know, and I've had a similar experience where you go from one show to um, you're working with the director of the next show. So I think, even on this side, you know, kind of on the in the peninsula uh, where we are, it's kind of the same the same thing. Right. I know. I know a lot of actors that take the boat over to uh, Bainbridge or Bremerton and do shows over there, and and people go over there, and and, and even Village Theaters over in Issaquah. So it's it's a bit of a drive. You know, I, I originally got started. I did a show at uh, Seattle Musical Theater, which was called CLO Civic Light Opera back then. I did uh, On the Town, I played Gaby, and the person playing Ivy opposite me was a woman named Jessica Skerritt, who has um, gone on to great success at Village in the Fifth Avenue, and and she was the one that encouraged me to go to Village Theater and audition, and, and when I got there at my audition, Steve Tompkins, the artistic director at that time, uh, said, I heard about your show, and I heard you were really good, and he ended up casting me in South Pacific there, and that started my whole village theater correction, you know, career. So that's, uh, you know, it's, it's those little connections, and and you carry those friends forward. Yeah, and and Seattle, Seattle's got such a range from small theaters to shows that are previewing before they move to Broadway. I mean, right. there's that whole range of of, of experience that uh, that you can get in this area. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, the biggest thing I've noticed is, like you said, that community aspect. Um, uh, we joke, I, I always called Greg my big brother because we played brothers in the first show that we did together. And uh, I mean, I really do consider these people my family. Um, and it's been, an, it's been a lot of fun, uh, even during the shutdown, to be able to reconnect with some of these folks, some directors we've worked with, other mm -hmm. actors and actresses that we've worked with, and, and then, of course, make new friends like you um, and just grow that mm -hmm. community but it's it's also really struck me that um the the lack of competition and elbow throwing and perhaps that's uh, that's something unique to my experience but it's always been about welcoming it's always been about growing that community that theater family um it's not competitive everyone wants to see you succeed for a new actor myself that's just was really refreshing I, you walk into those first auditions and it's oh man these people have all done it before and look how talented they are and you know, and, and, and people that I was very intimidated to go up against for these different roles are now some of my best buddies. Right. And I've had people say that about me, like that they were nervous being in the same audition with me, which blows my mind because I don't feel like I'm, you know, any better or worse than anybody else. You know? <laughs> well, I, I think I might know what what part of that might be. And that actually leads us into our next question. You're six five. 
And and back in October, you posted a video um, on Augmented Actor, uh, your YouTube channel, about appeal um, as an actor, finding your appeal. And uh, you don't have to be the, necessarily the best looking or the most uh, well-spoken, but you need to find what your appeal is and, and match yourself to those types of characters. Uh, you know, what's unique and appealing um, to your prospective director and, and audiences. On that same note, recently Maggie Rogers, who's a Seattle-based artist and director, wrote a piece for American Theater, actually entitled "One Sizes Are All Sizes Fit All: The Case for Normalizing Fatness on Stage," where she argues uh, for a more body-positive theater culture. So you're six five, and in previous conversations, you said that your height actually can work against you as an actor. For Maggie, uh, who's guy we're going to be interviewing on our next uh, show on uh, December 11th, uh, it's weight. So for you, it's height. As a director yourself, do you think there's any roles that demand a certain body type uh, or build to remain true to the story? And and have you ever had to alter a character based on physical characteristics of the person you're playing or the character? Uh, yes, to both of those questions. Um, for uh, roles, it's it, you know it's a, it's about typecasting, and we talk about typecasting and actors hate that because it cuts you out of so many roles that you think you could play. Uh, and I'm kind of warming up to the idea of, of embracing typecasting more than fighting against it. Um, there are certain roles that the author writes to, um, they have very specific characters in mind when they write an original show. And so they're looking for these these archetypes and these types. And so I think it's important when you're creating a show to in, uh, envision what the, the writers and, and the directors are kind of pushing for. That said, once a show is, uh, once the show is up and done and it's being redone in, in theater around the world, that's the time when people can press the boundaries and be more inclusive and alter the characters a little bit and, and find new ways and new exciting ways to present these characters. Um, there's certain roles like um, Tracy Turnblatt in Hairspray that needs to be a large girl, right? It's, it's written into the script. I, I played a character in uh, uh, a sequel to Robin Hood written by the late Martin Sharnan and uh, the character was Big Little John, Little John's son. And the joke was that he was six foot five or something <laughs> tall. And I was the only actor that was called back for it. It seemed, uh, you know, very few people uh, read for it and I got the role. So um, yes, there are definitely times when I think that it's a, a very specific type, but most other characters that, that are in stories, you can still be an architect, you can still be a sage, or you can still be a, uh, an innocent or whatever, and it doesn't matter whether you're big or tall or black or white or gay, straight, whatever, you know, that's where we need to start looking is in, in, in retelling these stories, we need to uh, expand our horizons a little bit. And then also just, I think writers are starting to be much more inclusive of different body types and people of color and um, transgender uh, groups and, and things like that. So I think we're starting to see a break into more diversity in those roles. And I think that we're gonna see more acceptance of different body types. Very good. Um, moving to a different subject here on, on awards. Now you were nominated for the Gregory Award for your role in the Pride at Theater 22 in 2017. Mm -hmm. Previous to that, you were part of the winning cast of Into the Woods at Stage Right Theater in 2015. Uh, when you're looking at award evaluators and things like that, now, not that anybody really does this for awards per se, but when you look at awards, do you 
are there certain things that evaluators are looking for in shows and in performances and things like that that you've seen over the years? I haven't had too much um, involvement in the process of of what what they're actually looking for, uh, but you do see the evaluators notes when you are nominated for an award or anybody can go in and look at them. And so you see the kinds of things that they respond to. And I think they're just looking for excellence and commitment to the role and unique takes on shows, at least in terms of the shows that I've been involved in. That's where I feel like I got those nominations and wins is because the show itself, like Into the Woods, we did uh, Stage Right did a very scaled down production. It was directed by Matt Giles and they used just sawhorses and ladders mm. as the set and just a few pieces of junk basically and created it out of this pile and it it added this extra layer of magic on a show that's already super well written and super, you know, polished and it, it you know, like the cow died, it's a sawhorse, you just knock it over and, and the audience goes nuts because they, they fill in all these blanks with their imagination. So having something really imaginative, imaginative take and not just redoing a show is something that I think uh, the evaluators reward a little bit. And the same thing goes for performances. They're just looking for people that are committed to their roles. And, you know, of course, I don't think any actor should be concentrating or worrying about winning an award, that's not the goal. Your goal as an actor is to, to deliver a, a performance and to totally commit to the show, regardless of what you think of it or what budget the theater has or mm. whether the audience is, likes it or not, or you get that feel. Um, I didn't think the audience really would resonate with the pride when I was rehearsing it, but you know, I was fully committed to the role. And then it was a surprise when they, totally, you know, were moved by it, you know, in ways that I couldn't perceive uh, from an acting standpoint. Only an audience member is going to get that, you know, when you're in it, you're too involved in it. So sure. <laughs> we were all just blown away. <laughs> Great. So you've been doing this for a long time, and mm -hmm. I'm just a, a rote amateur, but uh, we were actually both cast for the same role. Um, unfortunately, due to COVID, I wasn't able to perform uh, other than just getting some rehearsal time in but uh, that role was in Little Shop of Horrors as the infamous sadistic Dennis Oren Scrivello DDS <laughs> it's an incredibly fun role one I was really looking forward to playing and I would have loved to have seen you uh, in that role uh, but it was one in rehearsing and reading through the script I wasn't sure that I wanted the ladies in my life either my daughters or maybe my mom or wife to see, to see me play it's a pretty rough character but do you think that it's easier to play roles that, and this is actually one of your questions from Augmented, our actor, the Facebook page recently, which I enjoyed. Do you think it's easier to play roles that are closer to one's personality or like Scrivello? You seem like a nice guy. I'm a pretty nice guy. <laughs> like like that's that character that diverts so vastly from who you, you are as a person. I think if you were, were really like Oren Scrivello, you wouldn't be an actor. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I love playing characters that are different than me. I, I don't find them any more or less difficult. In, in fact, I think when you have a character that's similar to you, it's often more difficult to find out what those subtle differences are uh, in that character. And it's easy to fall into old habits instead of coming up with something new. But I, I've played a lot of sleazeballs. I played like Steve Heidelbreck in August Osage County, the pedo pot smoking guy. And, and um, I 
in the pride, all three of my characters in the pride were kind of sadistic or vicious or kind of bro types or, you know, characters that are totally unlike me. And I, I find that I like playing those kind of roles because I feel like it, it gives you the freedom to just delve into the human psyche a little bit mm -hmm. in a safe manner. I agree with you. Sometimes, like I told my mom and dad not to come see the Pride. It had a lot of heavy gay themes, and there was some nudity in it. And, and during rehearsals, I wasn't quite sure. It seemed more severe in the script than it actually ended up being. And then it was too late for them to come see it. But um, I, I think that um, human nature, we're, we all have this capability of these dark elements. They, they, they reside in every human being. So we can all be sadists. We can all be murderers. If pushed to the brink, we could all be suicidal or depressed or all these things that are the meaty things to play. And I also recently did a video about masks that we wear. And the common perception is that actors put masks on when they play a character. And I kind of think it's the opposite. You, you, we wear masks as people to suppress those animalistic tendencies that human beings have. And we, our personalities are developed out of those masks that we wear. And so acting gives you a chance to take some of those masks off, to dip down into the, the human psyche and the unconscious elements and then bring them out and express them to an audience in a way that's safe for you and the other actors around you. Yeah. Very well put. I I just uh, am I'm in the process of reading uh, Marlon Brando's autobiography, hmm. and uh, I've just gotten to the point where he uh, started filming a streetcar uh, named Desire, mm -hmm. and he he says almost verbatim what you said is that uh, especially any anyone even who's had maybe even a slightly troubled background has those elements like he did to pull from because people thought hey he played that that role so well because that was who he was well in fact reading his autobiography, it's nothing like he was. That Stanley Kowalski character, but he was able to draw from those things and dig into that the psyche of that character and play it so intensely that you almost believe that it was who he truly was as a person. And that just really spoke to me because like like you just said, it's we're all capable of those things. And sometimes that's when people perform their best is when they play at some extreme. Well, and even the nicest people, once you've lived a little bit, we've all had moments where we've been a complete wreck or we're yelling and screaming at somebody or we're, we're crying deep down, you know, or, you know, where you just, you're the real you, the real human underneath. And we never show that to the people we're around or rarely do if we're, you know, on an even keel. It's nice to be able to be that sadistic thing that you're not, you're, it's not you, but it's within you deep, deep, deep down inside but to be able to play it in a very rehearsed and controlled manner where everybody gives permission to mm -hmm. play that thing, you know, and the, the character that's usually opposite those sadistic persons is usually somebody that's being abused by them. Mm -hmm. And that's another side that mm. a lot of people might have trouble playing because they've never been abused or, mm -hmm. you know, they have to dig into that human psyche to, to play those kind of characters as well. Over the last, you know, couple of weeks here, as we've been building up for this uh, this interview, I know Matt and and I've both been viewing your uh, YouTube channel, a lot of the videos out there, and it's all over the board. I mean, there's something there for everybody. We were just talking about this before before this uh, the interview here that that if there if if you're an actor or interested in acting, there is something um, there for you. So we recommend yeah. anybody to go out and take a look at it. Are there questions that you get asked 
more than others around people that are looking to start out in theater? Ironically, I haven't had a lot of, you know, beginner questions. Uh, the Facebook group is comprised majority of people that have been kind of around for a little while and have some experience. There's some newer people coming in, but they're a little bit more quiet in that group. And as far as responses to the augmented actor videos, uh, you know, I've always tried to uh, include tips for beginners and for experienced people as well. So I get more responses to the videos rather than actual questions. But I'm, I'm uh, not sure why I don't get those questions. However, I am a member of a lot of different actor groups. And I see some of the larger groups that get the same questions from actors all the time. Actors always want to know, younger actors especially, are they too old to start acting? And they usually ask this at age 13 or 14. Right. Um, it's like, no, honey, your sex appeal is gone. <laughs> My daughter did that. She was 11. She's been watching Harry Potter and they all started at, you know, six. Right. Yeah. Dad, I just think, I just think life's passed me by. I just don't think acting's right. for me. Right. <laughs> I just had to laugh. Um, and that that's a concern for them because it, it feels like high school and junior high are, you know, it's the end of the world you're you know you got to get a head start right at then it's not ballet you don't have to start when you're young uh to to be good at it you can start at any time in fact i think some of the better actors are the ones that started later on in life mm -hmm. um other questions you get are, are like you know what is here's my take taking it home headshot what character type do i play or you know it's a common thing to see in a lot of groups and and I think you get the same answers. Like, first of all, that's not a professional headshot and, you know, and, and ask your friends these things and stuff like that. And, and you get a lot of people asking um, about school and choosing monologues and things like that. And I try to address all of those questions that I sort of preemptively answer those questions in my videos or by asking them on the Facebook group so that people can provide answers. I think that the thing about the my group that's different than most groups is that I ask those daily questions that are, mm -hmm. I, I, and I've been doing this for almost you know, a year and a half now, and I haven't asked the same question twice. <laughs> oh, that was um, going to be actually a, a follow-up question. How yeah. do you come up with a different question a, every day? Everyone, I have a list, know. and sometimes I just sit there and just, I have a drink, and I, I just come up with as many <laughs> different questions as I can think of. And there's a lot that I still have that I'm, I can't ask now because they're not appropriate during COVID lockdowns and, and, and things like that. So yeah, I have a list. I ask these questions and I um, I see people responding and I think you get all the answers that you need. So the beginning people come in and they just read the responses the other people are giving and they don't need to ask those questions. The other sites that I go to, you, you, it's just always a scroll of the same questions over and over and over again and the same people answering them. Mm -hmm. People kind of get mad at having to answer the same questions over again. And and I'm just trying to avoid that whole thing. It's you're going to find the answers somewhere, but you know if if you're really concerned, just look at some of the things that are already out there. <laughs> yeah, I've got a second what Greg said. I think uh, no matter what, no matter where you are on the scale, uh, whether you're you haven't started acting, you've been acting for years, there's really something for everybody. So definitely go out and check out the Facebook channel or the Facebook page, and then the YouTube channel. Simply Google augmented actor and you'll find it. Um, mm -hmm. One of my favorite collections, <laughs> it was just, I had to laugh as I watched last week in prep on augmented actor on the YouTube is your never do these things playlist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and for a new guy, it's like, well, I'm going to start here, you know, and I might have been guilty of one or two of them, I got to admit, but oh, yeah, uh, <laughs> could, could you, uh, could you give us maybe like your top three suggestions of those things just never do, whether it's on stage or, or in auditions? 
Yeah, uh, that series was definitely, um, I've had a couple teachers and stuff saying, I'm showing this to my students because as a, as a starter class and stuff. But uh, that was early on in this augmented actor. So I didn't think a lot of people have actually seen those videos. Uh, so I'm glad you brought that up. Absolutely. Um, I would say, for one, you, you should never give actors notes, other actors. You don't direct them. You don't tell them, maybe you should try it this way. Um, and you don't uh, feed them lines when they forget their lines and stuff like that. And I had to learn that the hard way because I would do that kind of thing. And I had directors and other actors kind of get pissy with me and I, you know, I'd have to uh, correct them, you know, correct my behaviors. And so I think it's very important because it's not your role as an actor to direct other actors. Uh, let's see, um, gossiping and complaining and, and being kind of a mean-spirited person or moaning about the show, about your costumes, uh, you know, all those kind of things. They just breed ill will within a cast. You get talked about yourself when you do that. And it carries over into, you, you know, your other shows and your reputation as an actor. And it's, it's real easy to... Uh, go down that path. Uh, we all have our little show buddies and, and there's always problems with shows and things we don't agree with. But the more you gripe about it openly to other actors and stuff, the more you're going to get labeled as somebody that's not a, a team player. And uh, doing a, a, a crew member's job for them. When you work in community theater or smaller theaters, you're often assigned to help with scene changes and costume changes. And so you get eager to help out and pitch in and, and strike things. But if you go to a regional theater, a union theater, or on a, on a film set, if you touch the furniture or the props or the costumes or do anything like that, the crew members will yell at you instantly and say, it's not your job. You, you know, we have people to do that stuff for you. So respecting people's roles on a show, and that includes acting and directing and, and stage management and, and lighting and stuff like that. It's their job to light it. It's their job to costume it. It's mm. your job to... Uh, embody those elements and make the best of them. When you're in community theater, you definitely need to pitch in and they, the theaters want you to do that. So that's really more of a note for, uh, you know, when you get into union kind of theaters or, yeah. or just, you know, where people are paid to do certain roles, you want mm -hmm. to respect those roles. And yeah, you're right. It does come out of uh, a desire to help out. And even the gossiping and stuff often comes from a desire to make the show better you're like, why did this person make this choice? Why did the director do this? Or this actor isn't doing something that's helping me out as an actor and you want it to be better. And so you have a tendency to give a note or to um, tell somebody or, or just complain if they don't just suddenly magically figure it out themselves. And even though it comes from a good place, it's the danger of, of directors talk to each other. When, mm -hmm. when you're casting a show, you don't know an actor, you look at their resume, you say, oh, I know that show, that director, you'll send them an email and say, how's this person to work with? And if you hear back that it can be difficult or they, they complain a lot, um, it can really hurt your chances of getting cast. You know, we all get in shows that are, you know, not our thing or, you know, that we're frustrated with or we're having a terrible, miserable time in our life during that show. Um, but it's just, it's a good, a professional actor is just going to keep that stuff to themselves and maybe confide in a friend after hours over drinks or something like that, but not on the premises during the show. <laughs> so speaking of, uh, or moving on to uh, networking. So 
uh, Matt and I have been talking about, you know, how do we expand the the footprint or our reach of, of our podcast? And, you know, so we have our friends, our families, um, our guests that, you know, and the, the network kind of grows from that. I think the same kind of thing can, can be said for some actors who want to move ahead and onto bigger and better things away from regional theaters to maybe a, a touring company or eventually Broadway, something like that. So how would you recommend that someone increase uh, their visibility or get their name out beyond just that circle, beyond just the, I mean, you had mentioned, you know, and, and we talked about, you know, you're in one show and then you've got a director in that show and it kind of links up mm-hmm. beyond that. But if, if someone is looking to, to just move, you know, in, in bigger steps, is, is there a way to do that? Or is it just a matter of kind of patiently going through that deliberate um, show to show effort? I think it's, uh, you have to be in it for the long haul. Some people luck out and get picked up or noticed or something for something and taken somewhere else. That's one way of doing it, but that's rare that that happens. It's a different ballpark for like podcasts and YouTube channels and stuff like that. Those are all definitely slow growth. And it's about that kind of networking is about putting your stuff out there more than you think people will be like when I post my videos on Facebook and stuff like that, I don't want to bombard my friends with my videos and get them to be tired with me. But chances are most of the time they don't even see them or they see it and they say, Oh, I want to watch that. But then they forget about it in the, in the endless scroll. So bringing it back out again and pushing it a little bit more and backing your own project is a way to grow those kind of things. And it's a slow process. I've been doing this for two and a half years and I'm like 2000 subscribers on YouTube, which is very, very small for YouTube standards, but it's growing exponentially. And each time you, the more you keep at it and the more you keep putting things into it, the more it'll grow. For an actor, and I don't have a lot of experience working outside of the Seattle or Salt Lake markets. Um, I'm not the kind of actor that travels a lot for auditions and stuff like that. But I would say that the same idea holds true. If you think of your career path, like uh, the neural network of your brain, and this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier. You, you know, when you have a, a memory, you your brain carves a neural pathway and it has it's made up of all these little nodes. And when you think of networking, think of each person you meet as a node in this neural pathway. So you are making that node as solid as possible with each person that you meet. So every time you do a show, talk to everybody in the show, not just the actors, talk to the crew, talk to the designers, get to know them, ask them questions about their process, ask them what they like and what they enjoy, go out for drinks with them, go out to have food, go to the cast parties, get to know the people because every single person is a seed or a a potential uh, connection in that network, right? So, Mm. So um, we think of networking as this sort of bad word, like we have to go and be schmoozy and, and, and go to cast parties and, and t- talk about ourselves and give elevator pitches and stuff. And that's not what networking is. People hate that stuff and it's difficult to do. The best thing to do is to just go and go see somebody's show and go up to them after the show and say, you really like their show. And hey, and introduce yourself and say, hey, I'm an actor in town and I'd really love to work with you someday. Simple as that, leave it go on. Uh, introduce one friend to another, make a connection there, and they'll remember you as the person that that 
hook them up, you know, uh, and that those little nodes start to grow over time. And like I say, one thing leads to another. And, you know, you do a show at Village Theater, you meet people from outside the Seattle market, and then they do a show in Louisville or New York or whatever, and, and they think of you, oh, let's call that person in, bring you in. Uh, when I did this Robin Hood show for Martin Sharnan, uh, uh, my friend Harry Turpin, who's the director in town, he um, was in it as well. And uh, Martin Sharnan was casting the touring company of Annie in New York. And Harry really wanted to go audition for that. And I said, well, I do too. So uh, there was about four of us that decided to go out and we actually went out and auditioned for the touring company. Harry got in, the rest of us didn't. That's not the point. The point is, is I never would have gone to New York and had that audition had I not made these connections earlier. Yeah, and I think that's, that can be applied to any any part of life too. Because I, I, from a career perspective, um, I had uh, worked with someone back in the 90s, you know, and 20 years later, I, he reached out to me about a job that led to the current job. So it's, it's one of those things you never know who you're gonna, you know, be able to, you just be nice to everybody, you know, have, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you never know when it's going to pay off. I thought of another connection like that. Uh, when I was uh, in college, I taught theater school for the youth in the youth program. And one of the students there was uh, Mark Chenevit, who is the co-artistic director of Second Story Rep now. And uh, he remembered me from that and years later said, you know, hey, you taught me in theater school and and now we're working together. And, and we formed this friendship that because he's, now, second story, I kind of have a little in there and, and work there regularly. And we have a sort of a, a connection where we can tell each other things and, and talk about all these kind of things freely and openly, which you don't necessarily get when you first work with someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Greg was saying, uh, just another another reason to be your best self and be a professional. I've heard that even the big shots in Hollywood would much rather work with someone who is on time, friendly, professional than some savant Absolutely. you know some brilliant individual who can't be dealt with but i just that's just good advice i mean in life in general you know be your best self treat people treat people right there's people like betty davis who is notoriously difficult to work with but you know as a brilliant actress who fought her way to get to where she needed to get you know and and so there is that path you can take as an actor too you can be difficult to work with but you still got to make those connections. You st you're, mm -hmm. you're not in a void. You're in this together with everybody else. You know, you piss off the wrong people and you're not going to get cast. Well, one thing that we're certainly all in together with everybody else and something that really was uh, part of the reason we launched uh, Heilman and Haver was the fact that we're all at home. The mm -hmm. fact that we're not treading the boards, the footlights are out right now. And uh, we like to ask all of our guests because we are still in the midst of this, you know, what's been your biggest challenge theatrically, personally, um, with the COVID shutdown? And, uh, you know, on, an, on a better note, what are you most looking forward to when things do eventually open up again? The biggest challenge for me was just that I had a, sort of a trajectory going. I felt there was momentum and I had like three projects lined up, which is rare for me to have three theatrical projects. One was a, a directing another show at Second Story. And so all of those dropped off. And so the challenges kind of, I mean, it was easy for me to kind of let go of that and and adapt. I'm, I'm adaptable like that. But the challenge is kind of figuring out 
do I go right back into that and try to pick it right up where it left off? Do I try something different when I come back? And I think having a grand pause like this that is global where all the actors are paused at the same time is kind of a blessing. It, it, it doesn't do anything further, the, the need to act and, and it's really hard to make videos about you know, training people for theater and stuff when we don't know when theater's gonna be back, you know, and, and, and what it's gonna look like when it comes back. But it's a time for everybody where you're, you're given permission to think about what you really want and think about other things that you can do. We're, we're all storytellers and there are many ways to tell stories. And there's other, you know, people picked up Zoom and doing Zoom videos and it's not the same as theater, but it's a, a, a branch of theater that has been developed because of this situation that we're all in. And I found that I, I can build my brand identity and work on illustrations and all kinds of ways of expressing myself. Uh, so this time has been very valuable for me. And I kind of, uh, when, when it comes back and I'm working again and stuff, I'm not gonna have the time to devote to the, my channel and my group as much as I do now. So there's gonna be a little bit of loss there as well. When I come back to theater, I'm just really looking forward to the people and being in the same room with, with other people, the laughs and the stuff that you don't even like about theater that, that gets on your nerves about it. I think we're all gonna appreciate it a lot more and not take it for granted anymore. And uh, you know, like any show could be your last show, uh, your last role. I've known a few actors that have died during COVID, not from COVID necessarily, but in this period. And it's like, you think, wow, their last show really was their last show. And so none of us are going to take this for granted anymore. And I hope that we have this, we carry that awareness with us for a long time as we transition back into theater. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's one of those things. And like Matt said, that's why we've been trying to you know, do the podcast. It's kind of, I think, what was the term we used? Kind of scratch the itch, right? Right. Because um, one, one of the things we talked with um, in, our, in our last episode uh, was about some of the things that people are doing whether it's Zoom or, or whichever, uh, to kind of get through. And it's not the same because part of, I think, why we're in theater is because we enjoy working with the people. And, right. and to a person, when we ask the same question, that's what it comes down to, is the people. What are people looking forward to getting back to and it's being with people? Well, and it's mm -hmm. also the audiences because you can do brilliant things with Zoom and online and other technologies and stuff. But... Um, the audience is missing. You don't get a response in there. So there's not that feedback that we're used to as performers. So it's kind of like you, we, we've turned all these theater actors into film actors, whether they <laughs> like it or not, you know, uh, those that continue on and, and whatnot. Did you guys, I'm, a question for you, did you, would you have started this podcast if it wasn't for COVID? You know, probably not because we would have been busy on stage. Like, uh, you know, like Greg mentioned, uh, it was it was born out of our interest in growing our own skill set. Uh, again, as two beginner actors learning. And we thought if we're going to be asking these questions and talking to people who are uh, experienced in these areas, let's share that. But, uh, you know, some of the best times we've had were in shows together. Uh, so it just made sense, you know, to, um, to, to, to launch this project. And I think going back to what you said, Creative people are going to create. Artists will be artists. You know, we're not going to let this thing beat us. And one of the things that I'm most excited to see is 
uh, is the stuff that's happening that's percolating under the surface, the screenplays that are being written, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that are going to just explode when everything opens back up and all this creative content uh, and output that we're going to see from people who've just had no other alternative but to create in this downtime. And I think also the um, goings on in the world, the you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff has really theaters are now paying attention because they have time to pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And they're making, you know, Village Theater, for instance, is making big adjustments to their selection of shows and things like that so that they can include more people of color in in their productions and not just in casting, but in, in the actual productions themselves. And I don't know that we would have gotten to that had we not gone through all of this political mess and and and, and whatnot in the world and COVID giving you time to reflect and and correct the mistakes that were have been embedded in in this system for a long time absolutely awesome well thanks doug i I appreciate the time has um really been educational and uh you have such a great breadth of of knowledge um i know uh, i learned a lot and hopefully our listeners have too thank you I think when we come back, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about our, our special Thanksgiving week version of In the Mix, and then talk with uh, with Doug again about some a specific topic that uh, came up on the on his on the Facebook page a couple uh, a couple of weeks ago. So we'll be right back on Heilman and Haber. All right, welcome back to Heilman and Haver. Thanks uh, again for joining us, and thanks to our uh, guest, Doug Fall, for uh, spending some time with us. Uh, another thing that uh, has uh, spawned from uh, the COVID shutdown are Greg's COVID creations. Now, uh, Mr. Heilman has become quite the mixologist uh, during this downtime, and uh, this time we tasked him for our In the Mix segment to come up with a cocktail for one of our favorite holiday movies, Thanksgiving movies to be precise, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, John Hughes directing with Steve Martin and John Candy at the helm. He didn't find one, not two, but three cocktails related to our favorite Thanksgiving movie. If uh, you guys joined us on our Facebook page or on YouTube, you will have seen the uh, video that we created uh, showing you guys how to make those and talking a little bit of trivia about planes, trains, and automobiles. But our our guest, Doug Fall, also has some uh, experience behind the bar. So we wanted to uh, throw this uh, conversation out to him as well and uh, talk to him about some of his favorite cocktails. But Greg, why don't you walk us through... uh, our three uh, libations uh, so our, our listeners can enjoy them as well this holiday season. Good thing. So first off, it wasn't a hard decision um, to figure <laughs> out which is the our favorite uh, our favorite Thanksgiving movie. First of all, there aren't a lot of Thanksgiving movies. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles obviously jumped to the top of the list. And what's better than one drink? Three drinks. So planes, trains, and automobiles. So all the drinks were gin drinks. So we, we uh, picked up some aviation gin your airplane reference. Then we made the boxcar cocktail. So we did a a gin and tonic using aviation gin. Then we made a boxcar cocktail, which is the gin uh, and triple sec lime juice and um, egg white for a little bit of uh, of foamy creaminess, which was really Mm. good. That was probably the the, the best out of the three. And then the automobile cocktail, which is uh, gin, scotch, and and sweet vermouth and and some bitters. So those were fun. Those were also... um, maybe more than we should have done in 20 minutes. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that was, that's what we did. The, the uh, video is posted on, on YouTube and we'll link it here in the show notes as well. And we had a, a fun time doing that and just really talking about one of the, one of the best movies I think uh, 
it's one of those movies you can watch over and over and over again. And, and Matt, you had some good trivia uh, for everybody. So, so uh, Doug, so I wanted to um, talk to you. I, we, we kind of teased it before we came into the, um, into the, in the mix break about a topic that I know you've got a familiarity with and some experience and something that was brought up on the Facebook page. And that is virtual reality. I know in film, when we look at film, uh, VR is something that has been starting to really uh, be used more and more in, in the production of films. Not only just the production of films, but distribution. There are some VR films that are being produced and distributed. I've uh, got a little bit of familiarity with, with the Disney side of it, mainly from you know Lion King um, and Captain Marvel use some virtual reality. But the idea that you can have a director in one place, assistant director or other crew in another place all working in the same set because it's all in this vr world really opens up a lot of avenues for uh, for producing films when we turn that to stage and some of these other you know uh areas is there anything we can do with vr there to uh you know kind of in either enhance viewing experience enhance the production experience i don't know that we're that vr it can be used as a tool for creating the experience, but I don't think that in live theater, at least, it's going to be a tool that people will use to experience live theater. However, I do think that VR could be very instrumental in bringing live theater to a virtual audience. Let me talk a little bit about how, how I've used VR in, in, in theater. Uh, when I directed A Christmas Carol at Second Story, uh, usually the set, uh, Mark Chenevik uh, designs the sets ahead of time and, and says, you know, here's the set you're going to be using, you know, make it work kind of thing. And uh, I, I went into a virtual reality program called Gravity Sketch, and I designed my own set as I was kind of blocking it. And you can go in, you can create, you know, your, your stage, you can create a proscenium, you can create little set pieces, and then you can stretch it out and blow it up to life size and actually walk around on it and get a sense of, you know, what it feels like to be on that set. And so I created my own set and then I took screenshots of it and gave it to him and said, this is kind of what I was hoping to get as a concept. Mm. And he, he said, no one's ever done that. No one's ever designed their own set before, you know, and uh, so that's one way you can use it. You could do the same thing with costume design as well to create you know, your presentations for different costumes. But particularly now during COVID, where we're suddenly at this dearth of, of theater, uh, this would have been something that would have been great if VR was adopted a little bit more, it was, if it was like maybe five years from now, and then we had this pandemic, I think we would all be doing VR productions instead of Zoom productions, mm -hmm. because VR, gives you such a presence you you that feeling of being in the room with other actors is very very real it's like being in immersive theater uh, if you look back on my augmented actor history you can see a couple of videos i did using a product called pluto vr which basically uh and i took some actors in and i we designed our own avatars we jumped into a room together and we did auditions and and rehearsals and and an actual show just with these avatars and the feeling that you get with these simple, basic, just hands and a head, um, 
when they're in the room and they're talking right in your face, it's like the person's right there. You want to sit back off, you know, <laughs> but we're all in totally different spaces in a VR headset. So that that presence that you get is what's missing from Zoom. It's what's missing from an audience's experience. And if you can develop software that can allow designers to design a set and lighting designers to light it and costume designers to create the costumes that they want, the sky is the limit. You can create these environments that, you know, you could do a set change in an instant and it's magical and you can fly the whole audience up in the air. You can have control over when the audience can speak or respond to something and when they can't. So you can give uh, people in totally different areas of the, of the world the, the feeling that they're sitting next to each other or in a rehearsal with each other. And I just wish the technology was there. Um, and you know, I've been part of designing the virtual reality experiences for a while, and um, I know that it's it's feasible and possible. It's just getting enough people to adopt it so that you know the people that come and see shows have access, easy access, cheap access to VR headsets to try this stuff out. So recently, you posted on the uh, the Augment uh, Actor Facebook page about it was a uh, virtual reality community was presenting a panel mm -hmm. on the use of virtual reality. Has that has that taken place yet? And yeah. it, it has. And is that becoming more popular? Are you, are you, do you think this is going to be a, a, a real growing avenue that theaters and actors and, and people who are even doing virtual stuff like this are going to to pursue? Is it a, is it a reality? I do think it's a reality. I think there are people trying to do it now. And, and this group, they're all from London and uh, they're using theater budgets, you know, like several thousand dollars and, and, and whatnot to, to hire teams of VR specialists to create their stages and their environments. And some are better executed than others. Some use kind of flat screen technology to project an actor onto a stage which doesn't quite work for me as much as creating an actual physical character in 3D and then embodying that character. We're not yet to the place where we can have micro gestures and the photorealistic avatars and whatnot. But in VR, something that happens when you get in there, it's so real that you can have a cartoon character in front of you that has just two dots and a smile and it is the realest thing thing. You can pick it up, you mm. can touch it, you can hold it, you can move around it, it can move around you. So yes, the technology is there, it will get better, it will get cheaper, it's not quite there yet. I don't. I think it would cost a lot of money for theater companies to build a VR version of their theater, but as technology gets better and as these glasses get smaller, the, the helmets get smaller, we'll find that people are gonna be adopting this because it really is a, it's the only alternative I think that would be viable to replace theater in a situation like we're living through now. So the, um, so one of the questions I was going to, uh, to ask next was around um, accessibility. So we, we talk about technology and um, I had the opportunity, there's a, there's a local company in Seattle area, Misapplied Sciences, and what they concentrate on or focus on is using LEDs to present content to people based on a certain profile or a location. And the easiest example I can, I can use is closed captioning. So using the same LED screen, I could be sitting and watching um, an English closed caption of, of a show. Person sitting next to me could be looking at the exact same LED, but it would be in a different language. Mm -hmm. um, so there's 
there, there's a lot of technology. Uh, there, there's technology like that that I could see being used for um, accessibility. I know that at Fifth Avenue last year, they presented Hunchback uh, mm -hmm. of Notre Dame for the, um, the hearing impaired. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I think it was the actor that played Quasimodo um, was, was hearing impaired himself. So I know that there's a lot more uh, of the accessibility that, that theater is looking to, to do. In our next episode, we're actually going to talk to a theater company based in, in Orlando who focuses on providing op acting opportunities for uh, special needs folks in the area. So there's, there's that inclusion there, and we're going to be talking some, about that. But is there some technology or is there some something that you're seeing or could see that allow for accessibility for viewing a show, you know, if there's an, an impairment, hearing impaired, visually impaired, or even for participating in, in acting, giving folks that might not ordinarily have a chance to act because of a disability, uh, mm -hmm. giving them a, uh, the chance they might not have. I think in answer to the latter question, I, I think that's just a, uh, a choice that directors and, and theaters need to start making is to just include people to start uh, re-envisioning roles to be played by somebody in a wheelchair or somebody who's deaf or somebody who's blind even and finding out ways like the Fifth Avenue did to make it work and make it part of the show. It, you know, uh, it's this, the same thing, uh, acceptance of race and gender and all those kind of things. It, it's something that theaters need to be more aware of and conscious about doing. And has, as far as technology, for a performer, it, it, there's probably some things that could be developed for an audience, for sure. Uh, like you said, with um, closed captioning, uh, you, the use of AR glasses to project, you could even project a, a signer and have it sync up with the show that's virtual so that uh, you can have a signer at any performance rather than just uh, you know special shows. And that could be moved around to wherever it's appropriate for the scene so that it can be focused on. So there's th that potential. You can also use AI to um, artificial intelligence to translate shows into other languages in real time based on the audio that's being sent through a microphone and put that on screens as well somehow or AR glasses so that people can see shows in their own language. Uh, as far as Deaf act, or I mean, blind actors uh, or blind performances. I, you could have closed captioning, descriptive captioning, uh, audio like they have on Netflix mm -hmm. and whatnot, where you mm -hmm. describe the show that's being done. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all kinds of things. There's also theaters that do productions. I I just did Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime at Village. I was an understudy, and uh, we had special shows that were catered for people on the spectrum to reduce the amount of lighting effects and scary sudden moments and things that would trigger that audience. And uh, so theaters need to start thinking about providing those kind of opportunities for their audiences. And so the opportunities are there. It's just making that conscious decision as a director or as a company to include those folks in, into the productions. Embrace the new technology. Yeah. Right. And find a way to yep. make it work. It, it, it requires thinking outside of your normal box and, and really just, um, why, why not put 10 people that are physically disabled in, in a show and write a show for them, you know, or, or, or put them in other shows that are traditionally done. You know, a wheelchair shouldn't hold somebody back from 
accessing those opportunities or even crutches. There was a production of uh, Jesus Christ Superstar at Se Seattle Musical Theater and the, the, the lead uh, was played by a female identifying person and um, she broke her ankle two days before the show opened. And they rewrote the whole show. She was playing Jesus. They rewrote the whole show with Jesus on Sorry, crutches. And my echo's going on. <laughs> and um, and uh, it became this great thing that really defined that show and brought it in a direction that nobody expected to bring it in because of that little accident. People just need to embrace those kind of things. Stop saying no. What's cool is that you see the you see the effort to be more inclusive driving technology, and then you also see the technology driving the ability to be more inclusive, mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's really exciting. Again, we want as big of a community in theater and in film and in the in the arts as as we can get. And uh, like Greg mentioned, if you guys join us next time, December eleventh, uh, we'll be talking specifically about inclusion in theater um, with members of the Running Man Theater Company in Orlando. Uh, and uh, addressing some other topics as well. So, Doug, it's been great to get your take on this. Uh, don't go anywhere. We've got a few questions for you. Uh, our curtain call segment got some fun rapid fire questions for you to wrap the show up. Uh, we'll be right back with our curtain call segment to wrap up Heilman and Haver. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Heilman and Haver. We're still here with Doug Fall, and we're going to ask him some rapid fire questions as part of our curtain call segment. Doug, let's get started here. So, what is the last thing you do? before you step out on stage and the curtain goes up? I first peek through the curtain to see who's in the audience because I love to know where people are. Um, but the last thing I do is I run the first line or two of my scene so that I know what's gonna come out of my mouth. I take a deep breath, I look down at the floor and just sort of block out everything and then I enter. <laughs> if you could work with one person, alive or deceased, who would you most like to work with? Oh, there's so many people. I think I'd like to work with, uh, uh, all right, deceased, uh, the director, um, Robert Altman. Uh, he, I just like his style. I like the way he uses his ensembles. I think it would be great. And alive, uh, David Lynch. Because <laughs> I love, I love. Um, That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so the th this last one is actually two questions. Uh, if someone's going to make a film of your life, First question, who would you like to play you? Second question, who do you think would play you? Yeah, these are hard questions for me. They're, when people say, who do I most uh, resemble or whatever, uh, there's three actors that always kind of come up. Edward Norton, who was in Birdman. Uh, Phenomenal actor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kyle MacLachlan from uh, Twin Peaks and, and uh, Portlandia. And Alan Ruck, who played uh, mm. Cameron in Ferris Bueller. Mm -hmm. he's, he's also on HBO Succession. Uh, those three actors all kind of look like me. We're all kind of aging about the same way. We all <laughs> kind of play the same kind of characters. So I think any of those three could play me in a movie. Well, thank you again, uh, Doug Fall. It's been a pleasure. We've learned a lot, had a lot of fun. We'll definitely get you back on the show in the future. Uh, coming up on our next episode, December 11th, we'll be joined by Sylvia Haas and other members of the OCA Running Man Theater Company, along with Maggie Rogers, a Seattle artist and uh, artistic director, in an episode dedicated to inclusion in theater, some of the topics that we've discussed tonight with Doug. Uh, until then, uh, please join the conversation on Facebook and email us with any thoughts or comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com and make sure to check out Augmented Actor on both Facebook and YouTube. And you can find us on iTunes, Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and YouTube. If you enjoy the show, make sure you follow us 
share the podcast with a friend. Don't forget to join us December 11th. And until we're treading the boards together again, thank you for your support and supporting local theater and joining us on Heilman and Haver. <laughs>